Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Please welcome David Lodge. Well, it's a great pleasure to introduce David Lodge to you, ladies and gentlemen, because I've been a, a great admirer of his various uh, novels over the years. But I don't think I've enjoyed anything quite so much of his but than Death Sentence, which lures you in almost immediately on page one and takes you through uh, the whole gamut of emotions. I laughed till I cried, and I cried a bit till I laughed as well. It's a, a most wonderful balance between some wonderful set-piece comedy and some heart-rending poignancy, I think, rather than tragedy. So what kind of, how, was, how did this book come about in your imagination, David? What was the first step? Um, I think it was that I one day, um, in fact, it was Boxing Day when I was going to bed. And it's interesting because there is a Boxing Day party in the novel which eventually emerged. I just thought there, there was a, a possible comic novel in the experience of hearing loss. Um, and I put it aside for some time. When I finally got round to writing it, I did exploit the comic possibilities of um, uh, the, the hearing loss theme, but I also began to develop it into more serious areas of life. So it's not a comic novel exactly, though it has quite, quite a lot of comedy in it. In fact, it changes in tone, I think, from comic to something like tragic or pathetic. Yeah, <laughs> um, but absolutely. But it does it very delicately. It kind of steals up on you. Yeah, so that was my intention. Indeed. Um, I mean, I was rather dismayed reading The Guardian this morning. They listed my event, which was very kind of them, but they said it was about a man coming to terms with impending death. Which <laughs> 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 is not quite the case. He is concerned with mortality because uh, hearing loss is a very characteristic symptom of ageing and therefore does make you think about mortality perhaps earlier in life than people who enjoy all their faculties for a long time. But that was how it started. Uh, now, obviously, whoever took that copy at The Guardian, obviously his hearing or her hearing isn't too great, <laughs> well, is it, after all? So what, how autobiographical is it, would you well, say? Well, the, um, the, obviously, the, the story of the, the main character and his loss of hearing is autobiographical. Uh, so is the character of um, his ageing father, because this was something which uh, also impinged on my life quite... Um, heavily uh, in, in, the, in, in the last 10 years or so. Um, and uh, the, the character of the father is, is based on mine. But the rest of the story, uh, the relationships of the uh, main character and narrator with other people are, are all invented. Um, and in particular, a, a, a subplot about a rather disturbing or disturbed young postgraduate student yes. is is entirely fictional. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad to hear it. Anyway, David, you want to give us a presentation, so can I ask you to yes. okay. move to the lectern? I've, I've prepared a, uh, an edited um, script, which will only last 20 minutes, which is what I was asked to do. Um, so it, it combines a bit of chapter one, a bit of chapter two, and I think it gives you a flavor of the, of the book. And um, Like most novelists, I like to puzzle the reader a little bit and make them ask questions which are answered later, but I won't impose all those puzzles on you. So you'll need to know that the 
main the character and narrator is a retired professor of linguistics, and he has a wife called Winifred, who he refers to as Fred. I don't think you need to know any more, I hope. The tall, bespectacled, grey-haired man standing at the edge of the throng in the main room of the gallery, stooping very close to the young woman in the red silk blouse, his head lowered and angled away from her face, nodding sagely and emitting a phatic murmur from time to time, is not as you might think an off-duty priest whom she's persuaded to hear her confession in the midst of a party, or a psychiatrist conned into giving her a free consultation. Nor has he adopted this posture the better to look down the front of her blouse, though this is an accidental bonus of his situation, <laughs> the only one, in fact. The reason for his stance is that the room is full of noise, a conversational hubbub which bounces off the hard surfaces of the ceiling, walls and floor, and swirls around the heads of the guests, causing them to shout even louder to make themselves heard. This is known to linguists as the Lombard reflex, named after Etienne Lombard, who established early in the 20th century that speakers increased their vocal effort in the presence of noise in the environment in order to resist degradation of the intelligibility of their messages. When many speakers display this reflex simultaneously, they become, of course, their own environmental noise source, adding incrementally to its intensity. For the man now almost nuzzling the bosom of the woman in the red blouse as he brings his right ear closer to her mouth, the noise reached some time ago a level that makes it impossible for him to hear more than the odd word or phrase of those she addresses to him. Side seems to be one recurring word, or is it cider? And flight from hell, or was it cry for help? <laughs> he is, you see, hard of hearing, or hearing impaired, or not to put too fine a point on it, deaf. Not profoundly deaf, but deaf enough to make communication imperfect in most social situations and impossible in some, such as this one. He wears a hearing aid, an expensive digital device with little beige plastic earpieces that fit snugly in both ears like baby snails in their shells, which has a program for damping down background noise, but at the cost of also damping down foreground sounds. And at a certain level of decibels, the former completely overwhelms the latter, which is now the case. It is not helpful that the woman seems to be an exception to the rule of the Lombard reflex. Instead of raising the pitch and volume of her voice like everybody else in the room, she maintains a level of utterance suitable for conversation in a quiet drawing room or tete-a-tete -tete in a sparsely peopled tea shop. They've been talking, or rather she's been talking, for some ten minutes now, and strive as he may, he cannot identify the conversational topic. <laughs> Is it the art on the walls, blown up coloured photographs of urban wasteland and rubbish tips? He thinks not. She doesn't glance or point at them. And the intonation of her speech, which he can just about register, does not have the characteristic declarative pattern of art speak, or art bollocks as he sometimes <laughs> disrespectfully calls it to tease his wife. It has rather the tone of something personal, anecdotal and confidential. He glances at the woman's face to see if it gives a clue. She fixes him earnestly with her blue eyes and pauses in her utterance as if expecting a response. I see, he says, <laughs> adjusting his countenance to express both thoughtful reflection and sympathy, hoping that one or the other will seem appropriate, or at least not grotesquely inappropriate to whatever she has been saying. It seems to satisfy her anyway, and she begins speaking again. 
he doesn't resume his former posture. There really is no point in aiming his right earpiece to receive her speech when the party babble is pouring into the left one. And if he should try to cover his ear with his hand, it would only produce a feedback howl from his hearing aid, as well as an eccentric-looking posture. What to do now? What to say when she pauses again? It's far too late to confess, look, sorry, I haven't heard a word you said to me for the last ten minutes. I'm deaf, you see, can't hear a thing in this din. She would reasonably wonder why he hadn't said so before, why, why he let her go on talking, nodding and murmuring as if he understood her. She would be annoyed, embarrassed, offended, and he doesn't wish to appear rude. She might be one of his wife's customers, for one thing, and for another, she seems rather nice, a young woman maybe in her late twenties with bright blue eyes, a pale, smooth complexion, shoulder-length flaxen hair, centre-parted and straight-cut and a naturally shapely figure. He can tell from the shadowy separation of her breasts, just visible at the unbuttoned opening of her blouse, that they are not artificially enhanced by silicon, <laughs> or thrust forward and upward by underwiring, but have the trembling plasticity of real, unfettered flesh. And he doesn't wish to make a bad impression on a comely young woman who's taken the trouble to talk to an old fart like himself, even if it is a random encounter, unlikely ever to be repeated. She pauses again in her monologue and looks expectantly at him. Very interesting, he says. <laughs> Very interesting. Playing for time, waiting to see if this will do, he puts his wine glass to his lips, only to discover that it is empty, and that he has to tip it up into an almost vertical position and hold it there for some seconds in order to make the dregs of chili and chardonnay trickle down into his throat. The woman watches with curiosity, as if she thinks he's going to perform some kind of trick. <laughs> Balancing the glass on his nose, for instance. Her own glass of white wine is almost full. She hasn't taken even a sip from it since she started talking to him, so he cannot suggest they get themselves refills from the bar. While to go off on his own to recharge his glass, or propose she accompany him on this errand, seem equally discourteous options. Fortunately, she seems to appreciate his plight. Not his real plight, his total ignorance of what she's been saying, but his need for another drink. And smiling, she says something with a gesture at his empty glass, which he's fairly confident of interpreting as encouragement to go and get himself a refill. I think perhaps I will, he says. Can I get you another? Stupid question. What would she do with two glasses of white wine? <laughs> one in each hand. And she's obviously not the kind of person who would eagerly gulp down one drink while you fetched her another. But she smiles again, nice smile, disclosing a row of small, even white teeth, declines with a shake of her head, and then, to his dismay, asks a question. He can tell it's a question by the rising intonation and the slight widening of her blue eyes and the arching of her eyebrows, and it evidently demands an answer. Yes, he says, <laughs> taking a chance. And as she seems pleased, he boldly adds, absolutely. She asks another question, to which he also replies in the affirmative, and then, rather to his surprise, extends her hand. Evidently, she's leaving the party. Very nice to have met you, he says, taking the hand and shaking it. It is cool and slightly damp to the touch. What did you say your name was? I'm afraid, with all this noise, I didn't quite catch it. She pronounces her name again, but it's hopeless. The first name sounds faintly like Axe, which can't be right, and the surname is a completely inaudible sound, but he can't ask her to repeat it again. Ah, yes, he says, nodding, as if pleased to have pocketed the information. Well, it's been very interesting talking to you. <laughs> Who was that young blonde you were deep in conversation with? Fred asked me in the car on the way home. She 
she was driving because she hadn't had much to drink and I had to have quite a lot. I've no idea, I said. She told me her name twice, in fact. I couldn't make it out. I didn't hear a word she was saying. The noise. Yes, it's all the concrete. It makes the sound reverberate. I thought she might be one of your customers. No, I've never seen her before. What did you think of the exhibition? Drab, boring. Anybody with a digital camera could take those pictures. But why bother? Oh, I thought they had a kind of interesting sadness. That is a condensed account of our conversation, which actually went something like this. Who was that young woman you were deep in conversation with? What? You were deep in conversation with a young blonde. I didn't see Ron. Was he there? <laughs> Not Ron. The blonde woman you were talking to. Who was she? Oh, I've no idea. She told me her name, twice in fact, but I couldn't make it out. Didn't hear a word she was saying. The noise. It's all the concrete. Nothing wrong with the heating. In fact, it's always too bloody hot for my liking. <laughs> no concrete. The walls, the floor, makes the sound reverberate. Oh, pause. What did you think of the exhibition? I thought she might be one of your customers. <laughs> Who? The young blonde woman. No, I'd never seen her before. What did you think of the exhibition? What? The exhibition, what did you think? Oh, drab, boring. Anyone with a digital camera could take those pictures. I thought they had a kind of interesting sadness. Can badness be interesting? <laughs> sadness, an interesting sadness. Are you wearing your hearing aid, darling? <laughs> of course I am. It doesn't seem to be working very well. Well, she was absolutely right. I tapped the earpiece in my right ear with my fingernail and got a dull, dead sound. The battery had packed up and I hadn't noticed. I didn't know at what point in the evening it happened. Maybe that was why I didn't hear what the blonde woman was saying, though I don't think so. I think it must have happened when I went to the gents, which was after she left. My battery's packed up, I said. Shall I put a new one in? It's a bit tricky in the dark. No, don't bother, Fred said, as she often does these days. <laughs> we drove the rest of the way home in silence. I went to my study to put a new battery in my right earpiece, or hearing instrument, as the user's guide rather grantiloquently calls it. Then I went into the drawing room, but Fred had gone upstairs to read in bed. I knew that was what she was doing, even though she hadn't said so, in the way married couples know what each other's habitual attentions are, without needing to be informed. Particularly useful if you happen to be deaf, in fact, if she'd informed me verbally of her intention, I would probably be more likely to get it wrong. I didn't want to join her because I can't read in bed for more than five minutes without falling asleep, and it was too early for that. I thought about watching the news at ten, but the news is so depressing these days that one shrinks from it late at night. Let it wait, you feel, till the next day's newspaper and the cooler medium of print. So I went back into the study and checked my email. No new messages. And then I decided to write an account of my conversation, or rather non-conversation, with the woman at the private view, which in retrospect seemed rather amusing, though stressful at the time. First I did it in the usual journal style, and then I rewrote it in the third person, present tense, the kind of exercise I used to give students in my stylistic seminar. First person into third person, past tense into present tense, or vice versa. What difference does it make to the effect? Is one method more appropriate to the original experience than another? Or does any method interpret rather than represent experience? Discuss. <coughs> 1st of November, 2006. I rather enjoyed writing that piece last night and rereading it this morning. So I'll go on for a bit. I first discovered I was going deaf at about 20 years ago. 
for some time before that, I've been aware I was finding it increasingly difficult to hear what my students were saying, especially in seminars, with anything from 12 to 20 of them sitting around a long table. I thought it was because they mumbled, which indeed many of them do, being shy or nervous or unwilling to seem assertive in front of their peers. But it hadn't been a problem when I was younger. I wondered if perhaps my ears were blocked with wax, so I went to my GP. He peered into my ears with a chilly steel optical instrument and said there was no build-up of wax, so I'd better have my hearing checked at the ear, nose and throat department of the university hospital. They did an audiogram. You wear a pair of headphones and hold a press-button thingy which you squeeze when you hear a sound. The audiologist is using his apparatus out of your sight, so you can't cheat. Not that there would be any point in cheating. The sounds are not words or even phonemes, just little beeps which get fainter and fainter or higher and higher until you can't hear them, like the cries of a bird spiralling up into the sky. Philip Larkin first discovered he was going deaf when he was walking in the Shetlands with Monica Jones and she remarked how beautiful the lark sounded singing overhead and he stopped and listened, but he couldn't hear them. Rather poignant, a poet finding out he's deaf in that way, especially when you think of Shelley's Ode to a Skylark, Hail to thee, blithe spirit, one of the poems everybody learns by heart at school, or did before educational theory turned against memorising verse. A poet called Larkin, too. It's almost funny in a black way. Deafness and comedy going hand in hand, as always. Deafness is comic as blindness is tragic. Take Oedipus, for instance. Suppose instead of putting out his eyes, he punctured his eardrums. It would have been more logical, actually, since it was through his ears that he learned the dreadful truth about his past, but it wouldn't have the same cathartic effect. It might arouse pity, perhaps, but not terror. Or Milton's Samson. Oh, dark, dark, dark amid the blaze of noon, irrecoverably dark without all hope of day. What a heartbreaking cry of despair. Oh, deaf, deaf, deaf. Doesn't have the same pathos somehow. How would it go on? Oh, deaf, 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 amid the noise of noon, irrecoverably deaf, without all hope of sound? No. Of course, you could argue that blindness is a greater affliction than deafness. If I had to choose between them, I'd go for deafness, I admit. But they don't differ only in degrees of sensory deprivation. Culturally, symbolically, they're antithetical. One of the strongest curses in the English language is damn your eyes, damn your ears doesn't cut it. Or imagine if the poet had written, drink to me only with thine ears. <laughs> it was actually no more illogical than saying drink with thine eyes. Both metaphors are equally impossible concepts. In fact, an ear is more like a cup than an eye. You could conceivably drink or at least slurp out of an ear, <laughs> though not your own, of course. But poetical, it isn't. Nor would smoke gets in your ears be a very... <laughs> be a very catchy refrain for a song. There's more in this than meets the ear. <laughs> There's something Inspector Clouseau might say, not Poirot. The blind have pathos. Sighted people will regard them with compassion, go out of their way to help them, guide them across busy roads, warn them of obstacles, stroke their guide dogs. The dogs, the white sticks, the dark glasses are visible signs of their affliction, calling forth an instant rush of sympathy. We deafies have no such compassion-inducing warning signs. Our hearing aids are almost invisible, 
and we have no lovable animals dedicated to looking after us, what would be the equivalent of a guide dog for the deaf? A parrot on your shoulder squawking <laughs> into your ear? Strangers don't realise you're deaf until they've been trying and failing to communicate with you for some time. And then it's with irritation rather than compassion. Thou shalt not curse the deaf, nor put a stumbling block before the blind, says the Bible. Leviticus 19.14 Well, only a sadist would deliberately trip up a blind person. But even Fred lets out the occasional bloody hell when she can't get through to me. Prophets and seers are sometimes blind. Tiresias, for instance, but never deaf. Imagine putting your question to the Sibyl and getting an irritable, what, what, <laughs> in reply. It's a very unequal contest between the two organs. Eyes are the windows of the soul. They express feelings. They come in subtle, alluring colours and shades. They brim with tears. They shine and gleam and twinkle. Ears, well, they're funny-looking things, really, especially when they stick out, all skin and gristle secreting wax, sprouting hair. No wonder women hang earrings on the lobes. <laughs> Men too, of course, in certain societies and periods, to distract the eye from the furry hole that leads to your brain. In fact, what other function does the earlobe have? Perhaps that's how it evolved, this otherwise useless flap of boneless tissue. Prehistoric people with enough flesh on the lower rim of the ear to accommodate earrings had an advantage in the mating process and so got selected but it would have been of no advantage if their ears hadn't served their primary purpose. Of all old women hard of hearing, the deaf is sure was Dame Eleanor Spearing. On her head, it is true, two flaps there grew that served for a pair of gold rings to go through, but for any purpose of ears in a parley, they heard no more than ears of barley. Thomas Hood, Tale of a Trumpet. Not quite in Larkin's class, but Larkin never wrote a poem about being deaf, as far as I remember. Perhaps he found it too depressing to contemplate, though he wrote about a lot of other depressing things. I just looked up that anecdote about the larks in Andrew Motion's biography. It happened in 1959, so Larkin would have been only 37. Motion says, as his hearing grew weaker in the years ahead, he felt more and more isolated, trapped in an incompetent body, foolish and pathetic, his deafness steadily darkened his melancholy. Yes, we know, we know. I was a bit older than him when I found out, in my mid-forties, but with more years ahead of me to feel foolish and pathetic in. Thank you. I should just add that um, Desmond does discover there are such things as hearing dogs. Uh, Indeed. <laughs> uh, who are admirable creatures, usually um, given to profoundly deaf people, who alert them to things like telephone bells, fire alarms, and so on. Uh, one of many discoveries he makes in the course of the novel. Now, at what st I know that for writers are ruthless in utilising their own experience for material for their work, but. At what stage did you decide to use your condition as a subject for fiction? In other words, when did you decide, if you like, to come out as a, as a deafy, you might say? It is a bit like a, a gay novelist coming out, actually, <laughs> yes. Um, because, in a way, it makes uh, the public part of your life rather difficult. Uh, occasions like this, you're never sure where you're going to hear questions and so on. Uh, so I suppose, and I think most people, 
um, this is really quite central to the experience of hearing loss, uh, tend to conceal it as long as they can and to even deny it. Um, and I've read somewhere that um, people usually take 15 years before they admit that they uh, have serious hearing loss. So it, is, it does need a certain candor, but then I think, as you say yourself, I mean, novelists do draw on their own experience. One combines it with invention and fiction and fantasy um, and also anecdotes that you hear other people. And you hope that the mixture is so seamless that people can't actually uh, know what is actually personal, autobiographical, and what is invented. And often they, in fact, get the two wrong, crossed over, I think. But um, uh, I think right from the beginning, I knew I was going to draw my own experience. Um, and, uh, but, uh, you know, there's a fair amount of invention in some of the um, mishearings. Obviously, the whole thing is heightened like fiction is. Um, and I think Desmond's hearing loss is more severe than mine. That increased the jeopardy, increased the tension, the stress. Uh, but um, I think, as I said, I, I would never have dreamt of writing this novel if I hadn't experienced hearing loss myself. I mean, how therapeutic has it been, the writing of the novel? Uh, again, I think, you know, I find most writing is therapeutic. In fact, this novel, of all my other novels, most resembles therapy, probably, which is also about a, a man suffering, this time from a kind of psychological affliction, uh, and finding some relief in writing about it in a journal form. Um, so uh, I think in the epigraph to that book, therapy is taken from... Um, Graham Greene, one of Graham Greene's essays, where he says uh, all writing is therapy. And he goes on to say something like, I don't understand how people who don't write or paint or have some form of artistic expression their life at all. Um, but that, I think, tells you quite a lot about Graham Greene. Um, but also, uh, writers are probably more prone to anxiety and depression. I mean, there are statistics which suggest this. So their ability to draw on it, for, uh, to turn it into something positive in the form of art or entertainment, um, is a, you know, a, a terrific um, resource, really. You it is therapy. Yes, you were telling me you've had a tremendous public response to the novel. Uh, yes, I mean, in, in particular, um, I've never had so many uh, you know, fan letters, one might call them, from readers so soon after publication. Um, and usually the letters are expressing some... Um, sense of recognizing in the book things they've experienced themselves. It might be hearing loss, it might be that they're beginning to sense that they've got it, uh, it might be that they have to deal with a relative uh, who has it, and also the theme of dealing with an aged parent um, is also a, 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 a reason why many of them feel an affinity with the book. Um, so uh, it seems to be of all my books so far uh, the one which has touched most people personally, actually. That's my impression. Now, I was thinking as you were, you were talking, I, can't, I can think of only one example of what you might call a tragic deafness, which would be Beethoven. Yes. Because for a musician, yeah. that is as, you know, it is. as worse as it can be. Yeah. And, but the same, and you, say, you deprecate the fact that perhaps deafness isn't taken seriously, while at the same time making comic capital out of it, as we were hearing earlier yeah. on. So why is it? Why is deafness inherently humorous, I wonder? Um, I think one has to distinguish between profound deafness and um, hearing loss. Um, profound deafness 
is often perceived as tragic from outside, um, though people who are profoundly deaf have quite different attitude to it, a much more positive one. Um, hearing loss, I think, is precisely that. It's the experience of loss, of, of a faculty you once possessed. Um, and for the subject, it is not funny. I mean, it is, in fact, a cause of great stress and uh, uh, irritation and depression. It is not a life-threatening condition, which is, I suppose, why it isn't really tragic. Um, but it generates comedy, and even if, while you may be feeling very foolish, you are aware that you are creating comedy. By mishearing words, you are constantly generating puns, actually. And uh, my novel is full of puns, including the title. Um, and by mishearing something, you may you know, commit ludicrous social blunders, which uh, are full of comic possibilities. So, I mean, there are deaf characters in drama. They're usually comic characters in farce, you know, a Fado farce yes. or something like that. Um, and they are, I'm afraid, the butts of, um, of the comedy. Now, until very recently, I mean, we've become a very cruel uh, culture, really. Nobody made comic characters out of blind people. Uh, but, um, in fact, now you do find that happening uh, in the, for instance, treatment of um, David, what's his name? His name's gone from me, previous Home Secretary. Dave Lunkett? Yeah, I mean, the treatment of his uh, amorous escapades and so on were heartless, really, mm. and would not have been, I think, tolerated 50 years ago, actually. But uh, generally, no, you don't find blind, the blind characters are comic subjects, but deaf tend to be. This is perhaps more of a literary thing than a thing in actual human intercourse. And, but um, even so, I mean, you do find uh, people laugh at your mistakes. I mean, how much it was your father in the character of Old Mr. Bates? Because I lost my own aged P about three years ago, yeah. and you've captured his cantankerous contrariness Wonderfully. So I assume that everybody who's gone through the same process will recognise exactly the same uh, parent-child relationship. Yes. Uh, how much did you embroider on your father? Very little, actually. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I did, you know, uh, I, I left of, of some years. He died in 1999 uh, at the age of 93. Um, and uh, my mother died quite a long time before that. Uh, I think when the, your second parent dies is always a kind of landmark in life. Um, and he um, caused me great worry, really, because um, he was beginning to get incapable of living alone and looking after himself, but he stubbornly refused to have anybody in the house to help him, um, and he wouldn't move. So that's the sort of deadlock situation which um, is presented in the novel um, and uh, which Desmond has to cope with. Um, my father, uh, I mean, in his old age, he was very difficult, but he was a remarkable man in many ways, and I hope that that comes through. Uh, he was, you know, left school at 14 or 15, uh, was a dance musician. Mm. I think I owe all my artistic genes to him. He was... Uh, um, very, considering the poor, the limited education he had, he had very excellent vocabulary and very witty with words. He could also, obviously he was a musician and he could, uh, he was quite a decent amateur painter. Um, and so I, you know, had a strong relationship with him, but, you know, it's one of the sad things in life that um, as old people, 
become old, they uh, develop, they become stubborn, they become difficult, and one knows one's going to oneself. This is the awful thing. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but um, so it's, I think we're all living older, so that this theme of um, how to cope with aging uh, is becoming more and more universal, mm. and uh, perhaps one of the sources of interest in the novel. Well, I think it's all about families, because I was very, both uh, Desmond and Fred, they're second married, so there are children from both first marriages. And I was particularly struck by the theme of family in the, in the novel, and I wondered how, what you were trying to explore, basically, by uh, having the sort of Akebourne-esque type right. family comedies yeah. and dramas. I suppose, um, I mean, I, I'm... I only have the one wife, um, yes. famously monogamous, and um, has a long, happy marriage. I suppose, I, I mean, um, I've obviously taken some elements of the domestic uh, stress caused by mishearing from our personal experience, but I wanted to distance the novel uh, from myself in that respect. So um, I decided to, that, that um, Desmond would be a, a widower, um, and I know quite a lot of people who've, uh, men who've lost their wives uh, at a midlife, and I feel great compassion for them, and I thought it was a, an area I'd like to explore imaginatively, of getting away from personal autobiography yeah, yeah. and that, really, and also the second wife is a posh uh, person, um, you know, of an old Catholic, English Catholic family, sort of with a a martyr in their family history and so on. Her family couldn't be more different from my wife's <laughs> family. Um, so it was all a way of distancing what was um, in danger of becoming too personal, too autobiographical a novel. Uh, but, but, but then it began to, as these things do, uh, it generated narrative which I hadn't conceived in the beginning. So I don't want to give, give it away, no. but the, the story of the first wife comes back in a quite dramatic way. I hadn't envisage when I, yes. when I made him have a, have a previous wife. And I must also, the one thing that particularly interested me was the relationship Desmond has with his son, which mm. intrigued me enormously because of what's not said, that they have a very kind of um, distant and yet understanding relationship. I wanted, uh, Richard, the, the cat, the son, is a, a very, rather a mysterious, enigmatic yeah. figure, yes. he, particularly to his father. Well, I, I, I know this kind of relationship, um, and um, I've had one or two letters about that too, yes. saying this is you know, my situation or my story. Um, I think um, English people particularly, uh, English men, have difficulty in um, showing uh, affection or um, uh, getting through to their children as a kind of distance. Um, and I, I meant to suggest in the novel that the death of the first wife had been really traumatic mm. for th their children, and um, he's, he, never, he never really recovered from it, is the, is the suggestion. But uh, there is a, a kind of um, uh, thawing of the relationship mm. between them. I mean, he, he's, he's in low-temperature physics, and, uh, and Desmond says, I think he's been at a low temperature ever <laughs> since his mother died. Yes. You know? um, and he, he does seem bottled up, but he... He, he performs rather well at the, mm. the end of the novel. Well, I think all those family relationships, all the characters are beautifully defined and their interrelationships are 
fascinating to get to know. It's like looking at other people's photograph albums in a way. You want to know, you know, who's aunt and who's the cousin and who's what. It's yeah. a, uh, a great treat. Anyway, let's have some lights up <coughs> and let's have a look at you. And my goodness me, what a fine collection of audiences we have today. <laughs> we also have two microphone wallers standing by. So who's going to be the first person to ask a question? Hands up, please. Right, here we are. Come along, microphone person. Oh, you're... There we are. Um, this is a question about how people react to deaf people. I certainly notice my own irritation when I'm asked to repeat what I was going to say. Oh, sorry, what I have said. Because it doesn't feel worth repeating. And lots of other reasons to do with raising my voice. How nice it is to have a microphone. <laughs> Beethoven has been mentioned. Conversation books remain in which Beethoven's visitors wrote down their side of the conversation. I'm interested why this has never been taken up by anybody else. I, d I can't answer your question about the... Co I didn't know about these, um, these books, but uh, Beethoven does figure in, in, the, in my novel, um, Desmond specifically. Uh, tells his story and quotes from Beethoven's very moving, uh, was called the Something Testament, which he wrote, yeah, um, which was designed to be read by his family after his death and was really saying, this is to explain to you why I was such an unbearable man, um, because all my life I've been trying to conceal the extent of my deafness, because can you imagine, you know, he was a famous conductor and uh, performer as well as composer. Uh, when at the age of like 29 he, he was um, uh, struck by some virus which made him not profoundly deaf but pretty deaf and it got worse and worse as he got older. And I, I, I think about the, the paradox that um, you know, he, he might not have written so much music actually if he hadn't gone deaf because he would have gone on being a conductor and performer. But um, on the other hand, it's, it seems unbearably poignant that um, he couldn't actually hear the, the greatest music that he composed. Um, I'm not sure that I've quite got hold of the question. Yes, yeah, so the conversation books that you're yeah. particularly interested in. Yeah. Uh, why do we've we've never tried that, or deaf people haven't done that before, or is that the burden of your question? It's more we haven't followed it up by doing it with deaf people afterwards. It's what the non-deaf people did. They bothered to write down their side of the conversation so that Beethoven could take it in. Well, I didn't know that, actually. Um, and it's not evident from the, the testament that he wrote. Um, he suggests that uh, he pretended, as many people do, to, to hear, or he you know, avoided society. He said, I, I can't go out uh, in society as I used to. But presumably, there was a group of sympathetic friends who were aware of his condition and he was prepared to share uh, and to admit to them uh, and to make use of, of written comments that's very interesting I wasn't aware of it thank you nice more yes over here come along Mike lady first front row front row gentleman in the front row there yes um, I was I was intrigued by your remark about how certain things in the novel developed in ways that you had never anticipated or intended which raises questions obviously big questions about your method of composition, if you like, and creation. Are you, are you one of those writers who creates characters and then sees what happens to them, how they develop, into, to some extent, in a sense, independently? Or is it all very carefully pre-planned? <coughs> well, because, 
uh, the characters, I mean, novelists some often say um, the characters just took the book and ran with it, or they, they took over. And I think when they say that, they, they just mean that um, the act of composition generated ideas about how they might behave, which they had not thought about before, not considered. Um, because after all, everything that you write is coming from your brain, and it's using your imagination or your memory. Um, it's using, in particular, your ability to make connections, make metaphorical connections and causal connections to think, oh yes, if he did that, then he might have done that later, in that sort of thing. And there comes a point where this, this kind of connectivity uh, be, it becomes so um, quick uh, that you feel you're being taken over. Uh, it's not a case of consciously sitting down now, what shall I do next? And it's really what I think most artists most enjoy. Uh, it's what psychologists call flow. There comes a point where, where ideas begin to flow. Think, one thing suggests another, another, and it all begins to take a kind of inevitability. Uh, in my experience, this only happens fairly late into a book, because everything else has to be rather uh, painfully uh, worked out, and can, you know, cancellations and deletions take place. And, you decide, though, that won't work, and you get stuck for a while. But there comes a point, usually, where uh, the, the, the major decisions have been made, and you, in a way, begin to believe in the life you've created, uh, and it begins to flow. And I think that you know, that is, in some ways, the most um, exciting and rewarding part of writing, when things develop that you think are, are good, are going to work, that you never anticipated, that you didn't think uh, of before when you planned the book. Excellent. Now, some more questions over there. Can you keep your hand up, please, ladies and gentlemen, so that our microphone knows where to come? Thank you. Hello, Mr. Lodge. Um, my question is sound-related. Um, uh, Eve and I are members of a visually impaired book group, and we will be discussing your Paradise News um, next week. And my question is, um, because the uh, reader, who I won't mention his name in case he's your cousin, it was a monotonous dirge and very difficult to listen to. This is uh, the RNIB Talking Books. Um, if you could choose from anyone from the performing arts, who would you choose to read Paradise News? <laughs> <laughs> This is, you're, you're listening to the unabridged tape, are you, of Paradise News? It's an MP3 RNIB recording. Is that what it is? The yes, yeah. well, presumably it's unabridged. Yes. Uh, and we, and we they are, don't like the reader. No, no, he doesn't. <laughs> it's just, you know, very, very difficult to listen to your words. Oh, that's To hear your words. That's, that's a great shame. I'd never listened to it, actually. Um, <laughs> so if you had your pick of uh, leading actors, David. <laughs> um, oh, goodness me. I mean, there are lots of actors who could do it very well. I'm afraid that the people who make those um, tapes can't always pay for uh, the, the top quality actors. Um, but, but, I mean, I think the problem with that book is, uh, for, a, for a presentation, um, you, you want, there is a, a first-person section in the middle, so you want somebody who can do Bernard, 
um, the, the main character, but there are a lot of comic characters and characters with different accents and so on, so you want somebody who can do um, a variety of accents. Um, and you want somebody sort of middle-aged, I suppose. Uh, well, Bill Patterson's well, in the author's yurt at the moment. He <laughs> might be a... This is the kind of uh, <laughs> conversation that you have with people who try to develop films or television series, and it can go on forever. Well, um, and I, I'm afraid I can't answer the question. Well, who's your favourite actor? Who would you like to read the book? Um, I'm sorry to say it would be a lady, and that would be Judy Dench. Judy Dench. Uh -huh. well, I'll, see, I'll give Dame Judy a call, <laughs> yes. and we'll see if we can fix it up. Oh, how kind. <laughs> Not at all. Thank you so much, Mr. Lodge, for allowing your books to be recorded by RNIB. There are only 4% of books available to us. Only 4%? Terrible. Mm. Should be a lot more. Anyway, thank you very much. Now, there was another hand up over there, and then we'll go. Yes, keep your hand up, please, so that the, the mic can be passed to you, and then we'll come over here. Thank you very much. Then pass the mic. Thank you. I, I found this a very informative book on many levels, as well as very entertaining. But I was particularly interested in your comments on linguistics, and I wondered if you had studied this before, or if it was just research for this book? Uh, a combination, really. Uh, I mean, my own field is literary criticism, but I uh, was uh, also specialised in literary theory. Modern literary theory is very much linguistically based, so I, um, I know a fair amount about linguistics, uh, and I, I was always interested in stylistics, in, in analysing the way language works in fiction. My first book, academic book, of criticism was called language of fiction. Um, so I had a, a good start, but I did have to um, read a certain amount. Um, as with all these things, um, uh, novelists great bluffers. I mean, they, they make a little knowledge go a long way. Um, and uh, I find each book I write, uh, you know, when I wrote nice work, after that I was invited to address management conferences. <laughs> <coughs> Enterprise things, and, and, and when I wrote um, therapy, I was, I was, I addressed the Psychiatric Association of Great Britain. And I, I would always say, you know, this book contains everything I know about the subject, um, and you think it's uh, like an iceberg, and this is just the tip of the knowledge, but there is no iceberg. This <laughs> is just the tip. Um, but um, I couldn't have, I wouldn't have made. Um, Desmond, a, a, a linguist, if I hadn't already uh, assimilated quite a lot of linguistics. Um, and the, the Birmingham English Department, where I teach, uh, and where I'm very careful to, dis to uh, distance the, the novel from Birmingham for that reason, has quite a strong uh, linguistic element, always did, and there was always a lot of um, interchange between the linguists and the literary teachers there. Uh, so um, the other thing made me... Uh, make him a, a professor of ex-professor of linguistics is there was a sort of pathos in the fact that his his speciality was language um, and in very much speech as well as writing and so his impairment was distancing him from his own expertise all, all the time uh, so I thought there was something to be made of that and that he could be 
uh, as perhaps the, little, the, the, the short reading indicated, he could um, explain his condition uh, t technically as well as emotionally. Um, he could explain what he knew what was happening to him. He knew why he was mishearing. Uh, so that was useful. Now, how about questions from over on our right here? Yes, get your hand up. Here comes the man with the mic. Good morning, Mr. Lodge. Actually, I wanted to ask you about the whole work you've done. You've written during the period we can call postmodern literary period. So, would you consider yourself a postmodern writer? <laughs> well, we all are. I mean, whether we even understand the concept of postmodernism, we are in the postmodern era in, in literary critical terms. Modernism is the, is the is the period dominated by writers like James Joyce, Virginia Woolf, Conrad, begins perhaps with Henry James in the English language. Um, and it is characterized by uh, a number of things, um, a, sort of a, a, a sense of impersonality in art, uh, mythicism, a lot of use of myth, uh, interesting consciousness in, in uh, subjectivity, uh, and on the whole, it's, um, it, it downplayed narrative, pure story, in favor of exploring consciousness um, in the fiction. Um, I think that the novelists have reacted against that kind of fiction in various ways, some by going back to a more traditional storytelling, realistic fiction, and others by playing around in a more playful way with the conventions of fiction. Um, those are both, in a way, postmodern. But usually, I mean, postmodernism means um, uh, parody, uh, intertextuality, uh, breaking the frame of the story, things like that. And I've made use of some of those tricks. Um, I think of myself basically as being in the realistic uh, English novel tradition. Uh, that is, I want to make, draw my readers into the world I create and, and make it credible. But every now and again, I find it sort of interesting and useful to break that illusion and to remind the reader that they're reading a book. Um, and uh, there is a point in my in death sentence where Desmond said, if this were a novel, of course, people would think blah, 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 um, which, of course, reminds you that you are reading a novel. Uh, and that, I suppose, is a very postmodernist sort of move. But. Um, I mean, being a literary critic who was teaching contemporary literature, uh, you know, I'm, I'm well aware, perhaps over aware, of where I fit into the spectrum of style and technique. Well, that is how I would define myself. Thank yeah. you. Now, how about some questions from here? Second row. Um, I thoroughly enjoyed Death Sentence, although um, I would recommend that there should be a kind of counselling service that you can go to uh, once you've read the book. Um, <laughs> like Al, I was crying buckets during the, uh, the course of my reading. Um, in fact, at one point, I thought I was going to be quite ill as a result of it. <laughs> Dear! <laughs> I, I got to the end of the book and was thoroughly uh, satisfied by what I read. But it just strikes me that there is a sense of masochism that comes across not just in the reading of a book, but in fact in, in the book itself, in the details of the book. In fact, there's one particular scene in which uh, masochism plays quite a, <laughs> an important part. Um, 
Can you explain to me why is it that we enjoy such suffering? You've identified your own suffering, the suffering of uh, your bereavements. You've, in, you've explained about the, the, the suffering of uh, uh, people involved in the book. Um, wh what is it about suffering that we, we go to again and again? Well, I mean, you've reacted very strongly to the book. I mean, in some ways, I'm, I'm, I'm very um, impressed and grateful to you for your, uh, your description of your reaction. I, th I think that um, suffering is, I'm afraid, at the heart of human life. I mean, it's impossible to avoid it. Um, and that, presumably, is why tragedy, uh, as, I mean, as a genre, and I don't think my no novel is a tragedy at all. I would call it more like elegy, really. Um, in that it's mourning, uh, but um, but I mean, why do we go and see painful, violent actions like uh, King Lear um, on the stage? Why do we, I mean, it, in a curious way, we get a kind of pleasure from it—the pleasure of understanding or of being uh, shown, um, reminded of our human condition and having it presented in some kind of shapely story which has a beginning, a middle and an end and brings us to some kind of catharsis, hopefully. Uh, it's, um, you know, it's, it's, it's what religion tries to address in the idea of the fall and redemption and it's what writers try to address, uh, not only in tragedy but also in comedy um, because the fact that there's almost nothing which can't actually be seen as funny in certain circumstances, certain, tilted in a certain way and presented in a certain way. And why do we read at all, actually? Why do we read story novels which are made up or mostly made up, um, and we know they are, because they bring a kind of order and uh, they, they make us, for once, forget the trivial uh, preoccupations of the day-to-day -day living and to think about the mystery, really, of what we are, Where, what, why is, what is it all about, why are we here, uh, and the strangeness, really, of uh, human fate. I think that's, that's the only answer I can give you. Thank you. Now, gentlemen here, here comes the mic. Keep your hand up, sir, so that we know where we are. Thank you. I, I was interested, but I have to say not surprised about the large public response you got to this book because it describes so beautifully with such wit and insight the range of problems that can occur together uh, when one reaches a certain age. Because, I mean, it's not just the failure of bodily functions as in the, the issue of deafness or indeed dealing with aging or dying parents, but retirement is a major theme in the book as well, yeah. isn't it? Desmond yeah. is struggling mm -hmm. to come to terms with the loss of his work identity yeah. at the same time as he has these other problems. So I guess many people identify true. with that range of problems all occurring at the same sort of age. Yeah, yeah that's perfectly true. Quite a lot of the letters are about people who've retired. And, um, I, you know, I, I gave myself a pat on the back for that, really, because uh, that is something I don't experience. Retirement, for me, has been extremely busy. Um, and I'm very lucky that I can... You know, I mean, I, I retired early by choice from university teaching, partly because I was getting deaf, but, but mainly because I wanted to devote myself full-time to writing. And um, uh, as I say, I, I, uh, I don't feel I've retired at all. 
so that was a, an act of imaginative projection into what it's like, because I have observed this in friends who have professions where they have to retire at a certain age, sometimes quite early, like 60, um, and some, suddenly the, the whole meaning of their life, um, that, I mean, they've always centred themselves on their work and that has sort of justified themselves to themselves. And then that's taken away. They're really rather adrift. And it's, uh, you know, again, it's a very common experience. And that is certainly one of the threads in the book, yeah. Well, the good news is, David, that there's more work for you to do in the signing tent, which is <laughs> next door to us. You can go out that way, turn right and right. You can go out that way, turn left and left. But here, I'm afraid I have to wind up. Now, first of all, could you join me in thanking our splendid signer, Kyra Pollock. And also our special guest today, David Lodge.